Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. All right. Well, I think you're going to enjoy this next guest. We do some deep thinking. We get kind of conceptual and, and dig deep into the, the nature of the mind and concepts and principles when talking about productivity. And that's just how Ben Elijah of com likes to roll. So I think you'll enjoy this and you're going to learn one, the importance of context in your day-to-day to-do list and how you can use it most effectively. Two, how Ben jots ideas down while in the shower. And now I do too. And three, how to ingrain new habits by using the habit loop. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to stuff mentioned in the show, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep42. But if you just want those particular takeaways faster, you can get that in your email inbox in an email you can read in under two minutes if you sign up for the gold nugget email list there over at awesomeatyourjob.com. A bit about Ben. He is the author of The Productivity Habits, and he studies how our relationship with information affects the way we live and work. As a writer who straddled science and the arts, Ben has a uniquely analytical approach to problems such as information overload, life goals, and well-being. Here's Ben. Ben, thank you so much for appearing here on the How Do We Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Well, so you, we were just chatting earlier. You say that there are reigns of biblical proportions right now in London. <laughs> yeah, it's um, London is not a dry city, you may, as you may be aware. But um, today's been a little damp, to put it mildly. And uh, yes, I, I feel like a, a drowned rat, but... Uh, Never mind. That's uh, <laughs> that's what towels are for, I suppose. Well, I've heard that rats are actually very good at swimming. So at least you're surviving. You know, there's an urban legend, which is something, it goes something along the lines that in London, you're never more than about seven feet away from a rat on average. And I'm not entirely sure how, uh, how true that is. Um, at least I hope it's not true, given that I live on the first floor. But uh, <laughs> it's... Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I've seen rats in London that are about the size of cats. So, uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just going to say for the sake of that statistic that they're including sort of underground sewer rats within the calculation. And so you're to make London seem more tidy. I'll be generous there. You know, it's fascinating. I, I have this theory, this little pet theory that there are that, that certain cities have a certain character, which you can't describe in a very logical way. It's just a kind of a feeling that you get. So you go to a city like Prague, which is beautiful. And there's still this sort of sense of, I don't know, this kind of sense of darkness about it. It's sort of ghosts of the First World War or ghosts of 1968 or whatever. And you go to somewhere like San Francisco, which still even now, even though it's being massively gentrified, it's, it kind of still feels a bit like a port city. And London is, to me, it's sort of death and decay and filth on one side and then sort of grandeur and rebirth on the other. It's this sort of a very paradoxical city. Oh, that's fun. So Ben, you write a lot about productivity, but you've also mentioned that you don't even really like the word productivity itself. Can you share mm. a little bit about that? Yeah. It's, I, I wish I'd had that realization before uh, having the uh, the title conversation <laughs> with, uh, with my publisher. Productivity, I don't know. It, it means different things to different people. And perhaps I'm being unfair. I don't know. To me, I hear the word productivity and I 
get some sort of mental image about sort of being pistol whipped in some sort of North Korean <laughs> sweat house, you know, sweat house. <laughs> That's very vivid. <laughs> There's this sense of, I, I've said this before, uh, but I think it's a good line. You know, you can be great at a job that you hate, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's necessarily very productive. Right. Or, excuse me, very, very effective. If what you, if you love flipping burgers for a living, and I, I don't, I don't say that to sound demeaning because you know what, mm-hmm. that's a lot of people rely on that stuff now, and that's cool. If you love it, or if you're clear about the purpose that that job is serving for you, then that's cool. But if you want to put all of your attention into flipping more burgers per hour, I have no idea how that job works, so that's probably mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> probably loads of people really angry at me now. But I, I think you get my meaning: the number of widgets that you crank out per hour. But it's not something that you deeply care about or it doesn't serve some deeper purpose in your life, then I kind of think that you're wasting your effort. Whereas okay. I think I think that if you're absolutely rubbish at something that you adore, then I actually think that's probably being more effective. Would I rather spend two hours working late on a project at work that I don't really care about? Or would I rather spend that time with my friends? You know, that sounds like a, you know, if just strictly speaking, if you look at it in terms of what you're selling to your employer, one of them is useful and one of them isn't. But if you think of it in terms of personal effectiveness and your own happiness and well-being as a human being, then you've got to consider the stuff that seems like a waste of time. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I like this. This is kind of kind of profound, kind of thought provoking, getting into some meaty uh, life matters here, as opposed to just cranking more widget matters. And so, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think at the same time, there is a beautiful intersection that if, if you love what you're doing, you, you are kind of naturally energized by it, engaged in it. You come up with more focus and creativity and uh, you're also more productive in the kind of greater output sense of the word. It's very difficult to get worse at your job. (laughs) You know, you've got to really put some effort in to get worse. If you love what you do, like, for example, I discovered that I, loved writing when I was really young. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, sort of seven and eight. And I always wrote, you know, and it was, it's become a sort of a daily habit for me. And I guess I realized I I went through a really like tough time in my late teens. Uh, Weirdly enough, at that point, I wanted to become a scientist, uh, specifically an astrophysicist, which remains a passion of mine. But my (laughs) inability to do calculus kind of screwed me up there, I suppose. But, you know, just having this sort of daily practice of something that I adored and it developed and, you know, suddenly a hobby that you start getting better and better at because you love it becomes a, you know, has become a career for me. And what's quite interesting is that I guess I look back on the stuff that I did in the past and writing is very easy because you can very easily inspect the work that you've done in the past. I guess if you're a gardener, that's a little more difficult. But, you know, I look back at the stuff I wrote. Hell, I even look back at the writing I put into the productivity habits and um, for various reasons, I some of the bits I cringe. Hmm. Some of them are editing issues, which uh, uh, were ironed out in uh, in later print runs, which was uh, <laughs> a painful topic for me. I've been there. I've been there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I understand. But, um, but you know, I, I look back on this stuff and I cringe, not because I think I did a bad job, but because I'm a better writer than I was two years ago. Yeah. And I think in two years' time, I'll look back on what I'm writing today and I'll think it sucks. 
And that's good because it means I'm getting better. Absolutely. Well, this is good. This is, I, I totally agree with that. And, and that's the story. And, and you can't just sort of wait forever and do nothing until you're a supermaster and then you right. never become the supermaster. So there's a, a fun kind of a duality or I don't know if that's a word or, or yin yang. There's a fluidity to, to what you're saying there. And, and that's cool. So, so tell us then, you've shared eight habits inside the productivity habits. What would you say are, are some of the, the most essential in terms of their, they're very powerful and yet they're also rarely practiced? Well, actually, I disagree that they're rarely practiced. Oh. I think that they're not practiced necessarily in the right way and they're not practiced consistently. And that's the problem. The most important one, and if you want a quick and dirty, I won't say oh, trick, I do. but a, a quick and, <laughs> a quick and steady on, <laughs> but a, a quick and dirty habit that you can implement, which will have a big impact on your effectiveness. And it's the first one, which is capturing, which is right. getting stuff out of your head. And I'm not the only person to talk about this. I mean, David Allen's Getting Things Done was a massive inspiration, and I credit, credited that in the book. I didn't want the, the book to feel derivative because there's a lot of original research and thinking in there. But honestly, David Allen, read him. Yeah. <laughs> Getting stuff out of your head. Everyone knows how to write a list. Like most people who can write can make a list. This isn't difficult. But to get to a point where you've, where you've habitualized it, right, that's difficult. So rather than, you know, if you have an idea and you want to get it out of your head, not because you know it's the right thing to do, but because you can't do anything else, you're almost compelled to do it because it's become a habit. That's what you want to aim for. And I've said this before, you know, to me, it's, it's something I, f I feel almost naked if I don't have some way of capturing information on my person at all times. I actually installed a waterproof notepad in my shower. Oh, I love the intensity. <laughs> That's cool. But you have to. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just like one tends to shower shortly after waking up. And, you know, if you've had a, ch had a chance to you know, sleep on something and I don't know, maybe there's something to do with the sensory experience of being in a shower. But you come up with tons of ideas. You know, everything from small, buy this thing for my friend's birthday or this is a great line of dialogue for my novel or whatever. One of the biggest frustrations, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels this way, but one of my biggest frustrations is when you have a fantastic idea and then 30 seconds later or a minute later, it's gone. It's lost. Yeah. And you spend the next 10 minutes trying to go through your brain, trying to reconstruct this great idea. And sometimes you just have to let it go. And I think that's a waste. And what's quite interesting is when you start capturing information and then crucially afterwards, you get consistent at reviewing it and processing it and adding, as David Allen said, would say, sort of adding meaning to it or clarifying it. The effect is very interesting. It's almost like adding your, your past brain, your, the capabilities of your past brain to your present brain. That's a very weird and um, almost mm. cliche way of describing it, but it's the best I can do. Um, I don't think I've heard it before. So it, I'm either out of the loop or it's not at all well, cliche. Maybe. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that could be a cliche. I mean, <laughs> um, you have this wonderful effect of rather than relying on what you're doing right now to inform your own creativity and anything that you happen to have internalized in your memory. If I capture ev literally everything and I got a way of retrieving it when I need it, that's bloody powerful mm -hmm. because it means that I'm no longer relying on my head. My, my brain is now absolved of its responsibility to store information 
my job, the job of my brain at that point then is just synthesizing new information. And that's what the human brain evolved to do. Oh, that's good. And I love Absolution. I just went to confession this morning. So that's so awesome. Uh, that's beautiful. That, that's that piece there. So I want to touch base on something before we dig into some follow-ups. First of all, this waterproof shower notepad situation, <laughs> how do I get my hands on one of them? Aquanotes on Amazon. Aquanotes. Okay. Aquanotes. Beautiful. Honest, I, I just buy like half a dozen at a time. Okay, very good. So, so I got you that. So, so there are some essential habits, and the key is to do them with regularity and and completion, such that you're not kind of half and half. It's like it's it's completely out of your brain, and it's getting reviewed uh, regularly. So, if you want another book to read as well, check out The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Oh yes, and his work and his work was one of the biggest. Yeah, probably one of the most. One of the most significant bits of research that I w- that I did prior to writing the productivity habits, and I did a lot of research as well. Other than that, that in the in the the process uh, of forming habits, that or, or rather than the uh, the way that human beings form habits, and I think it's all very well to describe this stuff. Everyone knows that you know your memory is fallible. I don't think that's a, a mm-hmm. great revelation for many people to say that your memory sucks and a piece of paper will will do a better job than any human's memory. But we can all agree with that, but then nothing changes. So the way I tried to structure the productivity habits was identifying the three stages of the habit loop as it relates to those eight habits in the book. So what are the triggers? Uh, What do you need to look for? What are the behaviors that you then need to implement? And then what do you get out of it? What's your reward? What's the craving that drives the trigger? Now, I've thought a lot about some of those triggers, behaviors, rewards, pieces. Mm. And, and I think that's a great way to deconstruct it and to really get things going. And so I think I've got an easy time with the trigger and mm. the behavior. But the trickier part for me is the reward. Somehow just like throwing some chocolate in the mix doesn't do it for me so much. <laughs> what have you found to be effective in installing some of these habits? You know, it's very, it's tricky because there's a lot of subjectivity to it. And I think I'm not fully qualified to answer the question because, you know, there's a lot of stuff in behavioral science, cognitive behavioral science, which, uh, which is still a relatively new field, which is exploring this stuff in really great detail. And I'm not an expert in that. So I wanted to say that as a preface because I don't want to sound like I'm some, some, I'm some sort of authority because I'm not. All right. Noted. Anecdotally, I find that just focusing on a positive emotion that comes out of performing the activity as a result of the trigger. Do that often enough, and it's not easy, and there's no denying that, but doing that often enough allows me to form a connection between the trigger and the reward. Oh, yeah. So, for example, um, to write stuff down, and once an idea has come to my head, I focus on the feeling of panic and paralysis because I'm desperate to make that piece of information safe. And then I focus on the feeling of relief. Yeah. Once I've written it down and that sense that I can just sort of relax and trust my system, which is very important because I know that I'm not, you know, so imagine sort of you're sitting on a chair and, you know, you've been standing up for eight hours and that feeling of relief in your leg. Mm-hmm. And that's the positive emotion that, you know, I, I try to focus the equivalent positive emotion in my brain that I try to focus on. And that suddenly becomes a really nice reward, which drives the trigger. Oh, that's powerful. And, and it's so simple because it, all it could mean is just spending an extra couple seconds taking a breath, sighing, or, and just reveling in, in that. And it reinforces it in and of itself. It ain't rocket science. Oh, that's good. 
That's good. But equally, you also have to forgive yourself and to um, forgive yourself is a strong term. I don't mean to put it in quasi-religious terms, but you have to allow yourself to capture utter rubbish alongside the good stuff because your job in that moment is not to filter. You're not there when you're capturing information. You're not there to do quality control. Mm-hmm. You know, your, job, your job there in that moment is to get the stuff out of your head. And then later when you come to clarify it and process it and add meaning to it or whatever verb you want to use, that's when you start saying, do I want to do this? Yes or no. Do I need to do this right now? Yes or no. And all the other questions that you might ask yourself to determine how you're going to defer it or how you're going to delegate it and so forth. So I got, I'm curious to hear, it sounds like you're you're taking some work of, of giants like Charles Duhigg and David Allen, and you're mm-hmm. you're making sort of sense of it in terms of putting it in, in practical terms and context and, and kind of how it works for you. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear, because I've had my own experience of this while writing books, is that you're kind of doing a lot of good synthesizing of, of other pieces and, and adding meaning and, and context to them. And there are other things in the book that's just like, whoa, I'm not quite sure where that came from. It came from the depths <laughs> of me. It's original and fresh and beautiful and unique. Could you share with us what are some of those uh, nuggets, some some Ben Elijah originals that yeah, you're pretty sure. proud of in your work? So I am really interested in the idea of context in like the getting things done sense. You know, this idea of a uh, of an environment which enables you or constrains you, right? Like the calls or computer or office, you have to be there yeah. in order to do it. Exactly. Now, I have a constraint which some people might not have, which is emotional or mental. Um, I have bipolar affective disorder. Mm. And uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, I have a relatively mild case of it. So I'm not, there are people out there that have it far worse than I do. But the result is that for me, my emotional state is as much a part of my reality as space and time. And what was quite interesting when I was doing the research for the productivity habits is that actually mood or thought will manifest itself in very different ways for different people. But it's sort of similarly, it's a variable which is there for everybody, or at least almost everybody. And when I think about context, I think about really it's an interplay of three things, which is space, time and thought. So any situation that you find yourself in is a function of space, time, and thought. And that led me to develop a concept called the context triangle. And it's my attempt to build a sort of unified field theory of context, if I can use those terms. And I actually put a blog post up on my my site. uh, If you want to take a look at that, um, you don't have to buy the book to get into the concept. Although, If you want to buy the book, I won't stop you. Um, And... What it allows you to do is say, okay, I've got space, time, and thought. So let's say space and time define the resources that I've got available to me. Mm-hmm. So a resource could either be fixed or floating. So chances are my my smartphone is probably a floating resource. It's with me at all times. Oh, okay, floating with you, not attached to a particular location. Yeah, I mean, if, if floating in the in, in I'm, I'm I'm sort of recycling computer uh, computer science terms here, but yeah, so floating a floating resource is something that I've got with me at all at all times, all right. or is available to me at all times or most times. Uh, and there are degrees of floating and fixed, so it's a, it's like a continuum. So my father is a fixed resource because if I'm if I need to do something which depends on the presence of my father, then I've got to be with my father, and I'm not with my father at mm-hmm. all times. Right. I've got to go around to his house or I've got to arrange to meet him or whatever. 
That's quite an interesting thing. But as far as thought and time are concerned, these can define things like the amount of information in your environment, and they can define your mood. They can define a lot of things. And that can relate to the amount of creativity that you can throw at a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could look at space and thought as well. Well, that can determine other things about your environment that relates to your attention. So you can then start thinking of availability being fixed or floating. You can then start thinking of creativity being like open or closed. If uh, You should Google for a John Cleese talk on creativity, by the way, which is worth okay, looking at. I think to think about open modes of creativity and sort of closed modes as well. And your attention can be deep and shallow. So we've got availability, creativity, and attention. Any task that you can define can be described in those terms. So any task that you might have, everything from buy a box of chocolates for mum or you know, write the next, the next great novel, they'll all have a particular requirement of availability, creativity, and attention. And if you can then relate all of the situations that you find yourself in in your life, everything from five minutes in the cafe to sitting in the office to date night with your partner, each of those has, a, has another particular combination, has a particular combination. So if you can match up your tasks to your situations, the context triangle basically allows you to make that connection. Does that make sense? Make the connection of what's most appropriate to be done here? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So. You know, if I've got a really important, I've used this example before, but if, if, if I've got a really, exam, a really important phone call to make, so that's got to require, that, that requires a phone, mm-hmm. a working phone. It requires probably a certain degree of closed creativity because I need to be maybe quite focused on it rather than being open and associative. And it requires deep attention. So mm-hmm. I'm on a plane and that plane's just taken off. Might be a really important phone call, but what can I do about it right now? Right. Very little. So I might then say, okay, well, in four hours, I'm going to be sitting in a cafe near the airport or in the airport with half an hour to kill. Great. That's probably an appropriate time to make that call. So I can then start relating my task list to my schedule based on the context that I'm going to be in. And that suddenly becomes incredibly powerful because if you know that you need to be making a whole ton of phone calls, but you are not going to be in situations that facilitate that, then you need to start making some changes. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, and that's, that's interesting. And it's funny. I think sometimes I think that I just want to be able to at will shift the nature of my attention, shallow or deep, or my creativity closed versus mm-hmm. open. But sometimes it's just, it's just not in the cards. Like you're, you're, you're in the space you're in. Some people can. I guess some people can't. I mean, if I'm feeling really appalling, then, you know, I can't, I can't reasonably be, expect myself to do something which requires that I feel fantastic. So sometimes you just have to accept, you just have to accept that and not beat yourself up. In, in my case, I've, I've learned not to beat myself up about it. And I pick stuff that I can do in whatever situation that I'm in. Because even if I, you know, if I can do it and still at least do something positive, then that can only be good for me. Oh, absolutely. And that's what's great if you have that list pre-populated and organized and advanced. You're, mm-hmm. It's just right there for you to, to pick things off and, and make it happen. 100%. And so you also had some cool, unique perspective when it comes to doing the review and, and making that an effective time. What, mm. What's your take on the review? Are we talking about reviewing your whole task system or just the way that you review different channels of information? I'm thinking about sort of like the weekly review or let me just touch point recollect with all that is and has been organized thus far and, and what happens. Right. I'm with you. 
the review is, in my opinion, one of the most neglected parts of anyone's attempt to become more productive. And if you accept that in order to become, I'm using that, I'm using the P word again, I apologize. No, it's all good. (laughs) If you accept that in order to become more effective, you have to start externalizing your thoughts, capturing them on a bit of paper or, you know, some sort of system and then reviewing them at the right time. So it's this algorithm of capture, review, capture, review, capture, review. If you accept that it's necessary to store stuff outside of your head, then the review with some sort of interval becomes absolutely critical. And it's something which is quite difficult for people to adopt simply because it takes a lot of effort and there's no immediate payoff. Right. So I guess, hey, you know, we're all mature, intelligent adults. We got to do it. What you do is very simple, is you just got to go through all of your projects that are outstanding and make sure that there is at least something, some task in there, which means that it's alive. If there's a project which is stale, in other words, there's just nothing left to do, or there are tasks that are overdue, perhaps, or, you know, you're not going to be in a situation to do any of them, and yet the project needs to be, you know, needs to be moved on, then being able to just sort of zoom out and take a uh, a view of your whole sort of life and how many projects you're doing and their status. That just means that you can make sure that the system is clean and it's tidy and that it accurately matches the work that you need to be doing. Because if it doesn't, then it, the system itself will become a source of friction for you. All right. And you don't want that because that means you won't be able to trust it. Again, this isn't rocket science. Most of this is just advanced common sense. Lovely. Well, before we shift gears into the Fast Faves segment, is there anything else you want to make sure that you put out there or any other tidbits of advanced common sense that you got to make sure we hear? To be honest, I think that for your audience, it's very important, in my opinion, to make a distinction. And I said this again at the, at, uh, right at the beginning, make a distinction between what it is to become better at your job and what it is to decide what job you ought to be doing. I mean that in a, right. spe- in a specific sense and a very general sense, because you could be great at a job that you're not enjoying or that isn't right for you. But sometimes you might just have to ask, you know, what job am I hiring my job to do? If I'm building a career as a writer, it's per- perfectly acceptable for me to go flipping burgers because that's going to pay the bills. and It's going to keep a roof over my head. But am I going to invest a huge amount of effort, come home physically and emotionally exhausted from that job? Well, in that case, if that were, if that were to be the case, well, that's not going to work for me. So you need to think about the job that you're hiring your job to do for you. The job you're hiring your job to do for you. That's fun. That's a good line, isn't it? That's right. Is that, that's a Ben Elijah original. <laughs> Very good. To write some of these down. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's, it's going to be transcribed, so you're covered. <laughs> oh, jolly. Marvelous. Well, let's hear a few of your favorite things then. Could you open us up with uh, a favorite quote, something that uh, you turn to again and find inspiring? Oh, God. You know, I'm really bad at quotes. (laughs) The wonderful uh, Winston Churchill quote, which um, was uh, something along the lines of a a woman said to him once, um, uh, uh, sir, if I I were your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. To which he replied, madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) And uh, it's the the witty bon mot. And uh, I've always found that rather charming. Oh, fun. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or piece of research you find yourself thinking about or referencing often? It's got to be the discovery of the Higgs boson. All right. <laughs> Seriously. You know, it, it's the human race at its absolute finest. Honestly, it, it's 
you could look at the rest of the human species with with a degree of cynicism that perhaps comes from living in a big city for a period of time. And you get to see the whole species as basically talking monkeys with nuclear weapons. But the fact that we have it within us to dig a gigantic hole in the ground in the middle of Switzerland to test for a subatomic particle, which is the basis of all mass, is there's something rather wonderful in that. There's something that's quite poetic. And I find the study completely inspirational, even if I don't have a bloody clue what it, what it means. <laughs> there's something in what we do, in, in how we still, as a species, with all of our problems and all of our issues, we still seek to, we still have this very childlike sense of curiosity. And I find that that is so inspirational. And it's something that I try to apply in my daily life. Oh, fun. Thank you. I got it. This has come up before. I'm going to have to research this a, a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> so that's exciting. How about a favorite book? Oh, it's 1984 by George Orwell. Oh, that is a good one. By a country mile. The way that guy writes, or wrote, I should say. You know, actually, there's, um, he did another, he, did an essay, he wrote an essay called Politics and the English Language. And it's very, I think he wrote it just before the end of the, first, of the Second World War. Um, or maybe even beforehand, maybe um, during uh, you know the early part. I'm not not quite sure. And it is quite UK centric, but I think the message is really clear, plain English, and English or you know language in general to be used as a tool for clarity and truth rather than obfuscation and deflection. Oh, agreed. And it's something which business, modern business language is infested with unclear, vague, euphemistic nonsense. I actually feel, feel that there's a relationship between the clarity, clarity of language and productivity, but that's another story. If you, it, we've all probably sat in meetings where you, know, you just end up you know, hearing the same corporate buzzwords. You end up trying to restrain the urge to trunch on someone in the face <laughs> because it's, so, it's just awful. And uh, if you use corporate English, shame on you because our language has the ability to be so incredibly precise and thoughtful and to contain such a vast amount of information. And we lose it when we start using this prefabricated IKEA language. Oh, anyway, IKEA language. That's good. Rant, rant over. Thank you. Uh, how about a favorite a nugget of yours that would you share it? Uh, folks tend to uh, retweet or take notes or highlight it a lot in, in the book, Kindle version. Uh, what's a, a quotable gem? Coming from you. I'm not sure I can do, I do that many quotable gems, but I think people seem to really take a lot of value out of the context triangle. All right. And I think if that's one thing that someone were to take away from the productivity habits beyond its core message, which is capture and review, then I would say that would be it. Thinking about the way your life and the way your lifestyle affects the work that you're doing. And if you want to change the work that you're doing, then you also have a tool that you can use to change the way you live. And I think people seem to respond quite well to that. Lovely. And what would you say was the best way to find you if folks want to learn more and check out your stuff? Where should they go? Um, so uh, my website is inkandben.com, I-N-K-A-N-D-B-E-N. And uh, I tweet uh, at Ink and Ben. And actually, I, I would love for people to contact me because uh, I'm, I'm looking for some... Interesting stories, really, for my next book. Mike, had to talk about that? Oh, take it. Oh, cool. Thank you. So I'm writing a book about, actually, it's based on my uh, dislike of the word productivity. Um, mm. 
it's it's more about what I mean to be effective. So how do you find things in life that you really care about? And then how can you then turn that into the next five minutes of your life? And I've come to realize that while smart, engaged, professional people might take that for granted, it is actually a learned behavior. And it's not something that should be taken for granted because I realize I'm very lucky with my education to have been taught this sort of stuff. How do I analyze what I care about and then turn that into a plan? And my book is an attempt to kind of codify that. So I love to hear from people who've got interesting stories about how they found things in life that they adore, found a calling in life, as it were, mm. and then how they turn that into a, into a reality. But I'm particularly interested in hearing from people who struggle with it. Okay. Because I find struggle far more insightful than success. Okay. Well, yeah, hopefully you'll, you'll get some good stories coming your way. So absolutely. Uh, mosey on down to inkandbin.com and, and, and share some of that, please. Tweeting me is probably easier. Oh, tweeting is simpler. Okay. Tweet yeah. at Ink and Bin. And any sort of final parting thoughts, a call to action or a challenge for folks seeking to become more awesome at their jobs? Get stuff out of your head. Get stuff out of your head and get almost religious about getting stuff out of your head. It's as simple as that. It's it's not difficult. You've just got to turn it into a habit. Well, Ben, this has been a real treat and some some really fun food for thought I could just I think, sit with and chew on for a while. So thanks so much for, for taking this time and, and we wish you tons of luck. My pleasure. Great to speak with you. Oh, you too. Well, I hope that inspired you to do at least something or plan to do something on your to-do list nicely contextualized. I know I went and bought the Aquanotes, Notes and they work pretty great, actually. I've been having some fun with them. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep42. And if you haven't already, please punch the subscribe button so you don't miss any of our great new guests. Next up on episode 43, we have the legendary vocal coach Renee Grant-Williams, who's worked with tons of country music music legends and shares with us how to use your voice to make a more powerful impression until then have a good one thanks for joining us for today's episode to get the most out of this conversation visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes transcript and infographic summary cheat sheet for more entertaining professional skill sharpening be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of how to be awesome at your job 